Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen, it's for October 2013. I am writer, hyphen, critic, hyphen, happy 50th birthday to Doctor Who, to the National Theatre, and to the assassination of JFK. Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... <laughs> Hi there, I'm a writer, hyphen director, hyphen uh, just traded for a third round draft pick, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us this month is our very special guest. It's Chris Taylor, how are you doing? It's uh, Chris Taylor, writer, hyphen, lover of hyphens, uh, <laughs> and, and hyphen podcaster, I believe now. I, I think this, this is my, the first ever podcast I think I've done. I'm the, on, I'm the only person who used to work in radio who, know, who doesn't have their own podcast. <laughs> well, wow. <laughs> I, I thought it was mandatory when you got sacked from Triple J or, or Australia. You just had to develop a podcast. But somehow um, that, that whole life has escaped me. So it's a pleasure to break my uh, podcast, Jerry, with, with you guys. Oh, well, we're, we're very happy to have you with us. Honoured. <laughs> Okay, so this month saw the release of a whole bunch of really, really good films. And despite that, we're still going to talk about Machete Kills. <laughs> because we sort of have this thing where we keep up to date with the directors we've covered on the show. And Machete Kills really made me question that policy. Um, uh, Chris, you, you, didn't, you didn't check this out, did you? No, I'm letting down the podcast quite early. This is where you, this is where you learn that I haven't done my homework and why I'm not, I don't make a particularly good podcaster. I I was all set to go and see this because I have liked Rodriguez's films in the past, but I think I, I heard from you, Lee. I, I saw a Facebook update that you'd done <laughs> just slamming it, so I said, oh... I only want to see the good ones. I'm not going to go to the ones that are shit. So, so no, I, I haven't seen it. So I can just put the kettle on and make myself a cuppa while you review this film. Absolutely. At least we know the system works. <laughs> but, Paul, you saw it, right? Yeah, I did. Uh, look, I'm, you know, I, I've been on podcast record as saying that I'm a Rodriguez fan, or particularly of his, of his you know, adult films, quote-unquote. And I'm on record as being a huge fan of the first Machete film. I loved the uh, kind of the modern... Mexican transportation of the the kind of the black action films of the seventies and the whole black exploitation aesthetic, but also the politics. I thought it really hit it on the head really well. Machete Kills is oh man, I don't know. It just feels like it's trying so hard to be a kind of you know a cool you know bad ironic James Bond film, and I just found it all a bit tired and a bit worn. And I was kind of thinking that. Well, like, one thing Rodriguez's films have always had for me in the past, and I'm sure many people will disagree, but to hell with it, is energy. Like, they've always felt energetic and choppy and, and, and exciting. And, and this film just kind of limped along for me. Um, I didn't unqualifiedly hate the whole thing. I, like, I liked, I liked a handful of ideas it had. I liked the El Chameleon character. Like, there are some kind of limp illusions to to politics in this film but i just don't feel like he means it this time around it really feels like the trailer in grindhouse was kind of a fun idea that was then adapted to a movie which was surprisingly robust for something that was you know based on this trailer and then they pitched these hypothetical sequels and it, it feels like a bridge too far as far as this idea goes. Yeah, this, this idea, which could sustain a two-minute joke, is now four hours long at this point, with another two to come. Yeah. I must admit, I, yeah, again, prefacing this with I haven't seen the film, but I was always a little bit upset by the idea that they'd made it, because I loved the trailer, uh, and, and always just thought that was a really good joke. Hmm. But the fact that he sort of went 
and followed through on making the film? Would it be like, remember the, the fake trailers at the start of Tropic Thunder? Yeah. yeah. Uh, which, which are almost the best thing about Tropic Thunder. And, but you'd be, you'd be kind of disappointed if they went ahead and actually made those films because what, what worked, as you said, Lee, is two-minute sort of sketches. I imagine, this is my sense, might not work so strongly if stretched out into a full feature. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. And, and, and he sort of pads it out with these really awkward references to Star Wars Star Trek and Mad Max it sort of goes beyond, uh, I don't know, Kevin Smith territory and starts entering Friedberg and Seltzer territory. They're the guys who make epic movie and date movie and all those. All right. Or, like, it's that level of, like, hey, you remember that thing? Well, we're going to remind you of it without any context. <laughs> it's just, it, it, it's bizarre. And the whole film is just setting up for Machete in Space, which is, you see the trailer for this third film at the start of this film. And then, oh, right. yeah, yeah. Then you spend the rest of the film just being set, having that set up. Yeah. Oh, he's building a space station. Oh, he's going to take them all up. And it's just, it feels like you're just there in service of this idea of a trilogy, which is barely enough to sustain one film, really. And and the fact that it's 106 minutes long, and there's so much repetition of jokes. Like, if there's one more thing that Machete don't do, I'm going to scream. Machete like, don't podcast. That yeah. Would be, uh... <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's. I was really disappointed because, like I say, I really enjoyed the first film. But I, I and you know, I was surprised that he managed to get en- enough of a good first film out of that trailer. But yeah, enough's enough. Time to move on, Robert. I don't know. Machete in space, when it inevitably comes out, will really have to compete with uh, with gravity. And I think, I think, <laughs> gravity is safe. Thematically, you similar. have little faith. <laughs> Gravity, easily the most immersive feeling of being in space since 2001. I'm talking about the film, not the year. Mm. Uh, maybe Apollo 13, that was, that was pretty good. But I've never had that sense of just, you know, you feel the ground could fall out beneath you watching this film. Because it's just so... Uh, so there's something Alfonso Cuaron does that just makes you feel as if you're floating out there with them. It's that amazing first shot which apparently goes for something like 17 minutes without a cut. And there's something about the way he establishes the geography in that first scene. And it's something we've seen a million times. Like in films, we we feel like, you know, you've seen that shot of the astronauts and Earth in the background or whatever. But there's something away about where he puts the camera and how he relates the actors to the Earth in the background that suddenly just make something click in your head like, oh, shit, okay, they let go of this ship and fall... That's Earth. There, what? How high are they? Jesus, get out of there! You know, and usually it's a put down to call a film a theme park attraction, but this film is properly a theme park attraction, particularly if if seen in the most immersive environment possible. So if you go, I, as we've said in the past, I'm a fan of IMAX. I'm not a fan of 3D. I absolutely recommend people see this in IMAX 3D. It is an extraordinary film. I mean, it's you, you just sit there. I mean, like you guys, I, I I took myself off to IMAX and did the whole 3D thing. It was unlike any other movie experience I've had in ages, uh, maybe not since Hugo or something, where you really feel like you're in the hands of a craftsman who's using the medium yeah. uh, and advancing the medium and sort of trying to give us something that we've never seen before on the big screen. It's, and, and it absolutely delivers on all those fronts. So I, I'm actually a bit of a, an astronomy buff. I actually love space and sort of docos about space. So this was a bit of a wet dream <laughs> for me. It, the spectacle is the thing, though. Yeah. The, the plot is um, thin, I think we could euphemistically say. It's, 
and if we were being harsh, are completely implausible. <laughs> but um, but it, did, it doesn't matter. It, yeah. And, and I, I, don't, I don't think there's many films you can say that of a script, where, oh, it doesn't matter, the script's a little bit thick. But in this, t- in this instance, you actually can say that, because the technical achievement is so astounding that you, you kind of forgive it anything else. I think the fact that it's thin is actually a bonus. I think that's a, a really good thing. And, and the problems I have with the film, because I, I adore it, but I do feel like... You know the the flip the flippant lines. You know the the bantery dialogue, the dream sequence, and the emotional backstory is kind kind of I, I really could have done without them. The, the whole thing with Bullock's character's daughter is sort of there to give her something to overcome, and I'm like, well, she's floating in space. I think that's actually enough to overcome. I, I was, she's this, got enough on her plate. <laughs> exactly. There's this, there's this thing that a lot of really uh, guys who consider themselves, you know, really hard genre fans who don't like emotion in films and television and just want the hard stuff, um, and they do tend to rail against the emotional backstory. This is the one instance where I, I actually think that would have benefited this film if you just stripped away that and just said you've just got to survive you've got 90 minutes to make it back to earth that's it go i do i do agree with that to a certain extent but on the other hand i i I think some of that stuff uh feeds into the themes of the film that they're kind of getting at like like i think quaron does want to say something about rebirth and about uh, existential spiritual awakening in the here in within this kind of you know, survival genre piece. And I think that sort of backstory, though a little heavy-handed at times, um, does kind of feed into that. Like like you, all any problems I do have with, with this film are all script-based and are all in terms of, yes, the dialogue, yes, the backstory, all that sort of thing. But, but in the end, I think it does... I think it's necessary for Quaron to have it there. I don't think it's just, oh, this is what people like, so this is what we'll do. I think there is actually an intention behind it, in which case I can kind of, though it's a bit ham-fisted at times, I can respect it. But in terms of something like Avatar, where I just wasn't engaged with that spectacle at all and the dumbed-down plot just served to annoy me further, in this, the spectacle is so overwhelmingly great that I can just totally forgive it. That's a good comparison because yeah, Avatar lost me with, with the with the the weakness of the script. Yeah. Whereas this one, this one didn't really bother me, and and I think you're right, Paul. I mean, it, it is quite a spiritual philosophical film. I think he's using gravity as some kind of metaphor for those of us who aren't necessarily weighted mm. in life. And if we've like Clooney's character's lost his wife, uh, she's lost a, a child. And it's about the need to re-weight yourself, root yourself again back to earth. And I think that's the metaphor that's kind of going on there. And look, as we've kind of said, it it is mostly all forgivable. I mean, apart from being technically amazing, it's also just a very beautiful film. Mm. I mean, to just see the earth um, from that angle... Uh, I think Clooney ever, even has a line, doesn't he? You should see the sunrise over the Ganges. It's beautiful or something. Mm. Like, and you're just kind of reminded about how awesome that job would be, uh, even in the point of death, to still remember the beauty of, you know, of, of the earth and stuff. So I think he is trying to make some comments about that and stuff. But um, it, it's totally a film you have to go and see. I mean, um, it's, it's, a, it's an event. It was, you guys probably know a lot more about this than me, but it apparently it was becoming a bit of a running joke in Hollywood, this film, because it was, it was three years later. It was delivered three years later than when it was initially promised, and everyone was dreading what on earth he was doing in those post-production suites. And, and I guess 
only now that you see the product, you can sort of get a sense of how hard the film would have been to make. The first thing I did when I got home after making it was just spend the next three hours Googling <laughs> how the fuck did they make <laughs> yes. it. And I think I've, I've read almost every article there is on it, and I still don't really understand how they made it. <laughs> I know it, it kind of involved, they pre-animated the entire movement of the, of the cast before the actors even turned up on the set. So when the actors had arrived, all, all they could really do was rig them up uh, against green screen and give them very finite space to fit their lines in to fit existing movements that have been animated. So wow. is that how you want it? It's happened somewhere, somehow like that, I think. Wow. And, and can I just say, 90 minutes long, people. Yeah. Amazing. Exactly. This is true. Well, it's funny you say 90 minutes because the only other film that came out this month which probably had even more impact than Gravity is a film that, depending on which cut you saw, is three, three and a half hours long. It's something ridiculous, but the documentary The Act of Killing. Two hours 39, I think. 2.39, are you sure? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Might feel like three and a half, <laughs> and I mean that in a good way. Yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah. So this is the, uh, the documentary about the... Atrocity. Yeah. Three hours, actually, if you, if they do the act of killing in space trailer beforehand, <laughs> uh, it, it extends to three hours. Yeah. Nice callback. Um, <laughs> it, uh, yeah, it's the, the documentary about all the atrocities that took place in Indonesia. God, I don't even remember how many years. It's Joshua Oppenheimer's film, I think, and it's just extraordinary. I mean, it's it's really. To, to, to describe the impact it has, you kind of have to describe what happens, but the impact comes from seeing it unravel. But basically, he comes to these guys who, uh, you know, had these murder squads who would go out and, and, and kill suspected communists, eventually gets them to reenact the murders that they committed, and the act of reenacting them is what the documentary really is. It's not just the reenactments, it's watching the revelations on their faces, it's watching them argue about what actually happened. And uh, it's, it's one of the most stunning pieces of work I've, I've ever seen. And and he could not have possibly anticipated that he would get as much as he did. So it, it feels like a real Hail Mary shot of a film. Two things came to mind after seeing it. One, it is genuinely something you've never seen before. Like We yeah. can say that about a lot of films, but this is genuinely, you have never seen anything like this. And the other thing is that it's art therapy on an epic scale. There is one principal um, ex-soldier that, that they talk to, and watching his journey over the film and his realisation and, and, and so forth is just jaw-dropping. It's also, it, you know, it provides a look into the humanity and banality of cruelty and, I guess, what we popularly call evil. It's, it's a tough watch, and I think most people that watch it will only ever be able to watch it once, but it's, it's absolutely an essential landmark documentary work. Yeah, I completely agree. It, it is truly unique as a doco. Um, and it, it's, also, it's also quite funny, which, which um, is not an adjective you guys have mentioned. It's, and it's sort of the trick of the filmmaker to sort of almost introduce us to these killers at first as though it were a kind of, you know, as though they were characters out of a Tarantino film. They're, they're kind of, you know, they, they, in their own land, they revel in the murders. They're, they're, they're heroes in their own land. And, and their love of cinema, um, a couple of them used to run a, a, a theatre, a cinema, 
and their love of cinema and their vanity for being movie stars has brought has brought them into a relationship with the filmmaker that has eventually been their undoing, if you know what I mean. Mm. So I imagine what happened because there's sort of there's a lot of films within the film. So the deal that Joshua Oppenheimer has done is say, oh, oh yeah, I'll I'll make you guys movie stars. I'll make let you reenact all your killings in any genre you like. So they go through and do them as westerns, as bizarre musical fantasies, um, and they're really quite surreal images. I mean, they're not images you'd ever see in a documentary before. And then, of course, there's the actual documentary uh, we're watching, which is of the making of these films. Um, and then he gets the, the killers to watch the little films they've reenacted back. And that's where the penny starts dropping and the genius of what the filmmaker's project has been is revealed. Because often, I mean, you know, there's, a, there's no shortage of documentaries that uh, deal with genocide, mm. but so frequently they're told from the point of view of the victim. It's, it's quite rare, I, I, I felt, that you get to go inside the head of the, the perpetrators and the killers and to see them talk about it so casually and, and heroically at times. I'd be interested to know how it's played in Indonesia because I, I always understood that my limited knowledge of the genocides of the 60s in Indonesia were there was great support for them. and like, People generally felt that the, the, the Chinese and the communists should be kept out and these guys were sort of heroes, but... I'd wonder what this film has done to change that view in Indonesia. I don't know. There's been some indication of what, what's happened in Indonesia. They've provided free copies, I think, for everyone over there. But um, the, the lead guy, the, the guy we follow throughout the film, uh, said to um, Joshua Oppenheimer, um, I've got to decry you. I've got to go out and say, you manipulated me. This film was, you know, right. is false. And he's been saying that in the press, but he actually said... Uh, there's a great interview we'll link to on the on the website with um, that Hyphenates alumnus uh, Simon Morado did with with Oppenheimer, where Oppenheimer talks about uh, how he has to lie and say no 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 he lied, I am not I, I did not recant I'm still the guy I always was where but he said privately to Oppenheimer that he still is that 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 was all true, right? And I I think you really touched on something uh, too, Chris by saying that, you know, we're used to documentaries from the, the, the point of view of the victims. Because if there's... This is a film that is, that is about the tenet that history is written by the winners. And it's the, yeah. and it's the fact that these crimes... These people are still openly boastful about these crimes, ab about the genocide, that they, they're seen in the film as being on morning television talking about the way they killed these communists and how amazing it was. It's like watching members of... It's like... World War Two, where the Nazis won the war and we're watching the Hitler Youth on Sunrise, you know, we're watching Goebbels on Sunrise talk about how amazing it was to kill totally. those... And, and the mm. crowd's going nuts, aren't mm. they? They're cheering them and they love them, yeah. And, and that's what's so insidious and creepy, but there is definitely a, a social strata that is... Ter and we see some of this in the film as well, that remain terrified to this day and know that it was wrong and it should never have happened and it was horrible but they can't speak out and hopefully this film which has been i think the uh, uh human rights organizations and maybe even the united nations have arranged those free screenings you were talking about lee um in indonesia and and, and hopefully this film is the first step to them beginning to speak out about how wrong and atro atrocious it all was there's sort of interesting, uh, I, I wouldn't call them ethical issues in terms of filmmaking, but the, he, he, he's a very, it's a very proactive filmmaking. I mean, the, Joshua Oppenheim is very, he's got a very, he's got an agenda to mm. expose these people. So it's, it's not your standard verite fly on the wall, let's just film these people. He is, 
indulging their desire to make make genre movies. He's going along with that, but secretly running his own agenda to use those against them to expose the the horror that they cause. So it's it's a bit like. Oh, I've forgotten his name. Is it Dennis O'Rourke? Because someone who used to, that Australian documentary yep. maker who got very involved with his subjects. It reminded me a little bit of uh, of those projects. And I know in, there's, a, there's a type of film student who sometimes thinks that's, you know, it's the documentary maker should not become part of the film. But I think what's slightly riveting about this is the role of the filmmaker in, in, in bringing... Uh, some justice to victims. Because you can't deny that it's the process of making the film that brings all this out. So I, I do like the, the, that Oppenheimer is open about the fact that they're aware of his presence. He's not pretending that he's this invisible force following them around. Um, mm. So, I'll, yeah, I, I think uh, it's, it's definitely justified in, in, in this film. I don't know many people have seen it. I don't know how many screens it's on in Melbourne. I saw it. It's only playing on one screen in yeah, Sydney. And just the one I, down here too. It's unlike you know other docos that occasionally you know generate some buzz. I don't hear people talking about this much, which is a shame because it really is worth seeing. It's an extraordinary piece of work. And unfortunately, we're we're out of time uh, for this segment. Otherwise, we'd be able to talk about so many other films. So I'll just leave on. Please also see Patrick and Mystery Road, two great Australian genre films, horror and a film noir. And uh, yeah, if you don't see them, you don't get to complain about Australia not making genre films. Agreed. Well, uh, it's come time again, as we do sort of roughly quarterly, to explore our mini hyphenate, uh, which is a filmmaker who is, or a team of filmmakers in this case, who has made, had a career of less than five um, directorial efforts. They're kind of an interesting case this month because they're people that, uh, apart, have directed several films, but together were exp- responsible for a 12-year period of classic genre-shaping comedy gold. It's so utterly distinctive from anything that they've done sort of since. So the our mini-hyphenate, after much ado, is the law firm of Zucker, Abrahams and Zucker, who are, of course, uh, Jerry Zucker, David Zucker and Jim Abrahams. Now, these three guys went, uh, they grew up, in Wisconsin and went to and kind of hooked up at the at the University of Madison Wisconsin so like they weren't like you know LA groundlings guys or you know Chicago or Toronto you know second city guys they were kind of real outsiders and had this sketch comedy troupe called Kentucky Fried Theater whose claim to fame until the late 70s was you know appearing on Johnny Carson once and doing a sketch and on stage they used to spoof movies and you know just generally be silly and and lots of puns and wordplay and 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 things like that and they wound up writing a script um that basically you know a kind of a what's a filmic version of the kentucky fried theater and the script was called the kentucky fried movie and they saw a um they're looking for a director and happened upon a young comedy director named john landis who to this point had only made a film called um a, a movie spoof called schlock in the early 70s and decided he was the perfect guy and so the Kentucky Fried Movie was the first time we ever got a glimpse of what Zucker Abraham Zucker could do. Um, this sort of rapid, freeform, crazy, uh, wacky kind of deconstruction of movie tropes and general all-round piss take of, of genre conventions. All of this stuff would be further amped up to 
dare I say, near-perfect pitch in their next film, which is their first film as, as, as director. And it was, it's also incredibly rare. Like, I don't know how many directing trios there are in history. Like, I, I'm hard-pressed to name any others. But their first film was, of course, the film that in America is known as Airplane and is in Australia and the UK is known as Flying High. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this is actually, one of, to me, one of the five greatest comedies ever made. Yeah, I'd probably have it in the top three and, even. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's this, this rush of, and, and, and sort of these levels of gags, like of, of visual, kind of, you know, visual humour and wordplay and, yep. and, and, and film tropes and then getting, getting actors who were in those kind of, you know, overly dramatic, kind of terrible films that they're taking the mickey out of and casting them in this, they get their actors to play it absolutely straight. And everybody is acting as if they're still in one of these melodramas. But the stuff they're saying is so patently absurd that it's hilarious. I think the deadpan multi-gag... Uh, approach they've got very pun heavy. I mean, everyone the famous airplane quote of "Surely you can't be serious." Surely you must I be am serious. serious and don't call <laughs> yeah. me surely. Then they kind of had created something new because it's not a very good joke. That's actually not a very good joke. But there's something <laughs> brilliant about it in in the way it's been delivered and directed. Same with all that. Like they've got a lot of sort of mm. running types of gags like they go we need to get these people to the hospital oh what is it it's a big building with patients in it but that's not important right now like again it's, it's just <laughs> yeah, a pun yeah. but it's it's done with such um commitment to the melod- melodramatic parody that um it's it all works very well and it's just the gag rate of these films is what's astonishing i mean and, and they do it in re- live action. I mean, something like The Simpsons has probably topped it for gag rates since on TV, but that's an animated uh, mm. piece of work which is easier to pile on the gags in. But, with, you know, with background jokes, a little incidental jokes in frame. But the command of uh, film language, and they loved playing with uh, the, the, the language of film and had a great grasp of it for people that didn't have a lot of di- directing uh, under their belt. Like... In their, you know, their, mm. their follow-up film, Top Secret, it's just full. That's playing with the medium all the time. There's a there's a famous uh, scene where the, they're parodying those old uh, shots where the telephone is in foreground and someone walks from background <laughs> up to it. And in their version, someone walks up to the phone and it is actually the size that, that it looks in the foreground shot. So they, it's full of these great visual tricks and playing with the medium. And you know, there's barely four seconds goes past without a joke of some kind. And even when I'm sort of dissing some of the jokes, they do actually work in the world of these films. If, you know, if they were just in Absolutely. isolation, if you got the Don't Call Me Surely in a Christmas cracker, you'd think it's a little bit lame. But in the world of Flying High, it's, you know, it's brilliant. Well, because in these films, that dialogue is delivered as if it's part of the plot. Yeah. <laughs> no? Like, it's delivered with the same solemnity. It's like this, you know, this, this dialogue means something. <laughs> it's just nonsense. <laughs> and, they, and they did that through, you know, from Airplane Flying High through to the six episodes of Police Squad in 1982 through to Top Secret. I mean, that was the, that was the style. Top Secret, by the way, should be as popular as Flying High. I think it's, it's almost as funny. That is one of Time's great mysteries. Like, I think Top Secret is every bit the equal in terms of 
hilarity as flying high. But the joke rate, I, I think, Chris, you got it spot on with The Simpsons. I, I cannot think of anything bar The Simpsons that matches Top Secret for the amount of layers of visual gags. Like, it is next yeah. level bonkers. Like, I, 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 yeah, like, even compared to Flight Leaves Flying High for Dead in terms of background information and in terms of playing with the tropes of film like what kind of film like again like the guy has two feet you know he's leaning his feet up on a desk and then takes takes his legs down from the desk but <laughs> the still, there, still yeah. there it's like yeah. fuck things are this and there's shit the, 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 the other you one know? where the guy's looking through the magnifying glass under his eyes really large and he takes the magnifying glass away and his <laughs> eye is actually that large and it's <laughs> the, the one that blows me away is in Flying High where she's talking to him as if he's in the mirror but he's in the doorway, and so she was just facing <laughs> a wrong direction. And it's so yeah. subtle and so weird, but, but it, it, it I've works. Got a, I've got a theory um, why Top Secret isn't as loved as, as Flying High. I think the plot's very convoluted, and it, it gets a little bit too caught up with plot. It, 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 like, in these films, plot shouldn't really matter. It, just should, it can almost be gravity-level simplicity. <laughs> and, you could just, and that's why Flying High works. It's a very relatable airplane disaster spoof. Whereas the other ones are sort of spoof of a number... It's sort of a, a mash-up between yeah. those Elvis sort of surf movies meets espionage film meets prison escape drama and it's sort of almost trying too hard plot wise but gee some of the jokes are good and some really memorable characters um it's i i'm always pushing uh top secret dvds into people's hands and i don't know if they watch them but i always <laughs> tell them oh you will love it it's seriously good and and the one that lee touched on which i think is almost what one of my favorite tv comedies ever was the police squad which was the forerunner to naked gun is really these guys at the top of their game. I mean, Leslie Nielsen was a perfect yeah. fit for them in, in playing the, uh, you know, the, the deadpan uh, B-grade cop. But they were trying to get into narrative stuff, weren't they? Because in 86, they did Ruthless People, which is a, really quite a traditional real-world narrative comedy. Is that them? And it, yeah. And yeah, the yeah. one film they didn't... The, well, the one film they made that they didn't write... It's almost like an Ealing Studios comedy in a lot of ways in terms of the bizarre cast of idiotic characters and the twists and turns, you know, via kind of 80s Hollywood. But, yeah, I enjoyed the hell out of it. And then the next uh, couple of years later, they teamed up to write, but only David directed uh, The Naked Gun the, uh, from The Files of Police Squad, which was an ad ad film adaptation of their TV series. And I... I like The Naked Gun a lot, but I, but you can start to feel the winking at the cameras starting to come into there and the and the kind of... The jokes are starting to become a little more heavy-handed and you kind of feel the command of the trio kind of sliding a little bit. Yeah, a little, look, it's still a really funny film. I actually stumbled on it uh, on TV again recently and, and I was a little bit nervous about... Uh, going back to it, but it, I got a lot of laughs out of it. Like the rate of gags that we saw in Top Secret and Flying High has started to drop off, and it's a more conventionally uh, yeah. plotted film. But it still it holds up pretty well, I think. And even the second one wasn't too bad. By the third one, I think we kind of, I think we all know. Yeah, it's starting to feel a little creaky. The third one, I don't think was any well, of them. Uh, the second yeah, one, uh, David Zucker was involved in the writing for the third one, but none of them directed mm. it they they're all credited as a trio as executive producers on this on the sequels but that feels more contractual than anything else the first naked gun yeah. kind of feels like the full stop to their career as a trio 
And and like like yeah, I do agree, Chris. I think it, I think it is a really funny film. I just think it's in this weird tween state where it's it's far better than anything that came since, but no, not quite as good as the stuff that came before. Yeah, and they all sort of went off on, in this on their separate ways afterwards. Where uh, David Zucker did Naked Gun two. Uh, Basketball, the the scary movie films, My Boss's Daughter, or actually two of the scary movie films, it was three and four, and uh, An American Carol. Uh, Jim Abrams did Big Business, Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael, Hot Shots 1 and 2, and Jane Austen's Mafia, so he tried to sort of get back to that mm. style. Uh, and Jerry Zucker sort of went off on the, on the, on the hard narrative uh, with Ghost in 1990, then First Night, uh, rat race, and uh, next year he's going to be directing a segment of Jerusalem. I love you. So they've all really sort of spun off in in slightly different directions. I, I just sort of think, yeah. I mean, if this is one thing. I mean, you want to talk about, you know, the sum being greater than the parts. I really think that applies with these guys. I think that there was definitely a magic between the three of them, and particularly to do with the time that they arrived as well. That I think between you know them. John Landis and perhaps the man we're about to talk about formed the kind of the nucleus that kind of, you know, revitalised and, and reinvigorated 1980s comedy. Yeah, it's interesting how, like, because they obviously have been influential. Although those sort of scary movies and stuff aspire to a, a level of spoof of the early Zaz films, but just so miss the mark, don't they? It's almost, mm. an, you could do an interesting case study in why one works and why the other doesn't. And I think it, it, it's partly just quality of the writing. It was also the direction and the performances they coaxed out of those people yep. because, I mean, I, I, I'm generally not hugely in love with American comedy films these days. I think everything's far too big. I know people love, mm-hmm. you know, the Will Ferrell and... Um, Vince Vaughn and all those sort of films, but I've always found them very big. But what when you look at Flying High, it is so deadpan. Um, no, yeah. no joke is underlined or telegraphed or anything. It's it's just carried on as if it's the most normal thing to say in the world, and and that's been lost. And it's it's surprising there's not someone in Hollywood being paid a fortune to realise that the magic and what worked about those films was the subtlety and the and 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 the understatement of them. Whereas all these scary movies yeah. and everything are just so big and. Uh, it's a shame because it's because as I said at the start, they really did invent a style. Even if they'd borrowed elements from Marx Brothers or other people, they kind of did invent a style. If you if you watched twenty seconds cold of one of those Zaz films, you would immediately recognise it as one of theirs. And 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 it, the couple mm. of people who've all tried to imitate them since um, just haven't got close. And it's um, no. you know so it's testament to just how. How good they were, and how, you know, it, it's a, it's a bit like maybe what you know Christopher Guest often says of people who try to imitate his mockumentary style. He goes, "Oh, everyone thinks they can do it, but it's actually quite hard to do." So they obviously had a, as you said, the uh, the combination of the three of them just hit upon a style that really worked for those handful of films and and the TV series, and and yeah. So, Chris, please tell us, whom have you picked for your... Hell is for hyphenates, filmmaker of the month. I've gone with Rob Reiner, who is, is responsible for an extraordinary string of films. There's few people who, when you see their CV, 
or their resume on IMDb, you, you look at them and go, oh, he directed that. Oh, and he directed that and that. And they're not, they're not films that you would think came from the same brain. Um, there's not really a, a, any continuity between them. But he obviously had a talent for filmmaking and getting the best out of a particular story, particularly in his early career. Uh, mm. we'll, get to what's, we, we'll get to what's happened later in a moment. But... Um, Rob Ryan is responsible for two of my favourite films and certainly one of my all-time favourite comedies, um, which is This is Spinal Tap, which I think is just a hilarious film. I mean, I we were just talking about um, Zucca, Abrams and Zucca, but, and I, who I loved as a kid, and somehow I... This is Spinal Tap had completely escaped me um, throughout my childhood. I don't know. It just, for some reason, wasn't on the... The, the, the playground circuit of films that were you know shared and talked about that you had to see like we all talked about yeah Monty Python and and these kind of things but I the whole Spinal Tap phenomenon had escaped me until I was at uni on an excursion uh, we were going catching a bus from Sydney University down to Canberra to, to go to the uh, the art gallery and to divert us or to uh, keep us uh, entertained on the trip, they just put on this film on the bus. And it was This Is Spinal Tap. And I just sat there with my jaw dropping at, at the brilliance of this mockumentary about the rock and roll industry and cursing myself for never having seen it and just being amazed that no one had ever thrust this film in front of me before. And and it's a film I probably watch at least once a year or once every two years and still never get sick of it. I just think it's perfectly done. I mean, we talked about the tone of the Zaz films. And they're doing something different in the Zaz films because they're spoofing of genres. This was spoofing documentary, which is which is sort of quite commonplace these days. I mean, you see it everywhere from, well, the, the subsequent films that Christopher Guest made. And Christopher Guest obviously uh, was one of the main creatives on, on Spinal Tap. But... Uh, the work of Ricky Gervais, Chris Lilly, it, like it's just in, in TV comedy, mockumentaries almost become a bit of a cliche. But this, I think, was one of the first. It was certainly one of the first that I ever saw, and it was done so subtly. There's all these famous uh, stories, like Ozzy Osbourne saw it and didn't realise it was a it was a spoof. <laughs> he thought he thought this was a genuine band. He wanted to go out and buy the record. So. That was my introduction to Rob Reiner. But he wasn't... It's not like he was became a filmmaker I followed the way I follow Woody Allen or uh, other filmmakers whose work I enjoyed. Mm. Films of Reiner just kept appearing and I kept liking them. And it was only when I sort of studied the credits later that I realised he had a hand in them, which is sort of what I was saying earlier. He doesn't have a, a visual style. He doesn't have a signature. Um, but he did have a bloody long string of hits. See, this is the guy who made... This is Spinal Tap, The Princess Bride, Stand By Me, which was one of my all-time favourite mm. uh, films, not only of Reiner's, but uh, generally as a, as a coming-of-age drama. Then he made, I think, Misery pops in there somewhere, A Few Good Men. When Harry uh, Met Sally. When Harry Met Sally, of course, is the other one, yeah. I'm, the famous one I'm forgetting. And then The American President, uh, continuing his work with Aaron Sorkin that he began with on A Few Good Men. So if mm. you put those list of films together, you, you can't, you're sort of struggling to find the connection between them. But Rob Reiner's the connection. And, and there's few people who, during that period, which, let, what is it, mid-'80s to mid-90s, maybe, is just yep. had hit after hit. I think there's one stinker in there. Uh, I think North... North in yeah. 94, North, yeah. There's, yeah. Well, there's also uh, the Shaw thing in 85, 
the 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 John Cusack, John Cusack in film trying to get laid, yeah, which isn't a, which, you know that which which I remember watching it again had no idea or, or no concept of directors or auteurs back then. I just thought. Mm. It was, you know, another teen film. I was surprised Molly Ringwood wasn't in it. I just thought <laughs> someone other than John Hughes has made a film about teens trying to get laid in high school. But again, great film. It's actually, I mean, it's not one I've seen in many, many years, but I remember at the time. That was a film actually when the first VHS shop opened in my suburb. My brother, who was a three, few years older than me, um, and was going through a bit of a, you know, teen romp period <laughs> he'd worked his way through revenge of the nerds and porkies and he'd come home with the sure thing and i remember really liking it and again i was only years later i realized that was also rob reiner so yeah i think the sure thing is i i know people who talk about that rather affectionately and, and highly in the same sort of breath as their affection for stand by me or when harry met sally so it's an impressive CV, um, but God, God knows what the link is between them all. Yeah, I, I don't think there is one other than for a period he was really good at picking scripts and really good at making them. Uh, it, it's really, it's very workmanlike stuff. Well, it's definitely, there's also an understatement of style in a lot of this stuff as well. He's very keen to kind of tone down the visual flash, tone down the kind of, and just let it rest on the script and the actors. And kind of a trust in the actors to really run with a character. And I don't know if that, because he originated with Spinal Tap, where the, 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 the actors were literally creating their characters, or, or, or what, but there seems to be, particularly in that, that stretch of early films, there's definitely some just delicious characterizations. I mean, would Princess Bride be half as great as it is if we didn't have Mandy Patinkin's ending or Montoya? Mm. How you know, good is he? How good is he? Brilliant. Like, yeah. Yes. The thing about Reiner is he's... Um, He'd been a very famous actor before he even picked mm. up a, you know, sat in the director's chair. Mm. He'd been like, you know, the, the Charlie Sheen of his day, like the star of a very popular sitcom. I think it was called All in the Family yeah. or something, which was huge. It was like the modern family of its day or the two and a half men of its day. It's not, it's not a great show, but he was really famous and really popular in it. And he, of course, came from good comedy genes. His father, Carl Reiner, was very much involved in that sort of Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, uh, Sid Caesar sort of period of comedy writing, Neil Simon. So there was show business in his blood. And so maybe that's what he got. You know, sometimes just instinctively you can... You can an actor just has good instincts that mm. that that some directors don't. So maybe he sort of just understood what the beats were. Especially comedy actors sometimes get this. So when he when he is doing drama like uh, A Few Good Men or Misery, he he knows the beats and the emotional sort of beats to to hit rather than overdoing it and stuff. Because you, you, you as I said, you wouldn't say he's got a a particularly distinct visual style. Um, his films are visually quite conventional. I mean, Spinal Tap certainly gets the parody of the the fly on the wall thing quite right, but that's uh, that that's that's an obvious choice. That that decision makes itself when you're parodying something. You have to shoot it that way. But but on his in his narrative films, if you didn't know, you you wouldn't necessarily pick a Rob Reiner film, but you you could probably always pick a Rodriguez film, probably for yeah, instance. Yeah. But but there's there's a heart about them and a and a combination of humour and heart that it can so often be mawkish, but he kind of gets it right. I mean, even when I watch Stand by Me now, I, I normally cringe at you know uh, those sort of films about childhood and how what a wonderful 
pure time of our life it was and the loss of innocence being a, a terrible moment. But he, it's done with a, a real delicacy. And maybe it's there in Stephen King's original short story. I don't know. I haven't read The, the Body, I think it was called, on what Stand By Me was based. Mm. But, mm. but it's, um, he's someone I, I've known just from reading interviews about him, is very involved in script writing. So for someone who's worked with famous writers like Stephen King, Aaron Sorkin and William Goldman, who's written two of his films, he wrote The Princess Bride and, um, help me, what's the other one? He uh, Misery. Ha- misery. Really, he adapted we, King's Misery, yeah. yeah. And as a little trivia fun fact, he did a silent unpaid pass on A Few Good Men as well. Which Sorkin liked so much that he went back and incorporated Goldman's uh, editions to the play and republished the play because A Few Good Men started as a play on Broadway. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, he's he's, he's worked with these very solid credentialed um, writers, but he's, from the interviews I've read, he's very involved in in the scripting process and had a lot of fights with Goldman on the Misery script. And for instance, I think in the original novel of Misery, which I haven't read, the Kathy Bates character actually amputates the foot of the writer. Reiner correctly, I think, thought that would be a bit too full-on and graphic for cinema, so merely made it breaking his ankle. So he Mm. just hobbled around rather than have an entire missing foot. So, yeah, he he was very hands-on with that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, the, it, it, even on uh, even in uh, when Harry met Sally, which which is said to be uh, based partly on Reiner, that the Harry character is said to be partly based on Reiner and Nora Ephron, who wrote the screenplay, yeah. is uh, supposedly a bit like Sally. Reiner was just saying things on set the whole time that were amusing Ephron, and she'd quickly scribble them into the into the <laughs> screenplay and stuff. So yeah, he, look, he's I think with the the comedy bones and the acting bones he had, he's obviously got great sensibility and, and empathy for writers and actors and I think that's what helped him have such a successful string of hits uh, there is a sort of you know there is that sort of classic period where like a lot of people could draw a line in a different place for me it ends with the American president in 95 another Sorkin script uh, before his sort of, I don't know, let's call it his blue period begins with uh, <laughs> That's very ghosts of Mississippi. <laughs> yeah. Now, th- yeah. Now, this is the thing. I, I, I think you really hit something there with, with, with the whole script thing. Like, you look at the writers he's worked with to this point. We've got Golden, we've got Sorkin, we've got Stephen King, we've got the team of, you know, Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon and Harry Shearer. And then you look at the screenwriters he's worked with since, and it's not nearly that kind of an all-star roster. Because this point here, as you say, the blue, like we have these period, this period kind of ends very definitively with the American president. And it's kind of like, you know, before AP and after AP. (laughs) And suddenly it's, it becomes one of the most baffling drop-offs in form ever seen from a director in the history of the medium. Am I, like, I'm not overstating this, right? No, I think no, that's fair. No. I think that is fair to say. And I, when I nominated him to talk about on the podcast, <laughs> I was kind of thinking we'd just stick to the early film because <laughs> the others are so bad that they, they don't really merit much discussion or, or even much viewing. I mean, I, I haven't seen most of them. I think I've only seen one of his films post-AP, which is The Bucket List, the, uh, the Jack Nicholson, Morgan Freeman vehicle. But the rest of them are sort of famously bad, as in nominees for the raspberries bad. It is, it'd be a fascinating thesis to know what went wrong and whether the brilliance of those early films 
happened despite him or it, whether he... It feels when... like a mirror. It honestly feels <laughs> like there, there is a mirror. And it's not just in terms of the first half was great and the second half was was bad, but you've got films like... Uh, so, so, okay, his, his bad period, the story of us in 1999. Well, let's have Ghost of Mississippi as well. Let's do, Ghost you know, of Mississippi. Okay. Yeah. Ghost <laughs> of Mississippi, while not a, a film I particularly... Love is not regarded as a turkey, though, is it? I think it, no, it got some Oscar think... nominations for, for acting, I think, from memory. And it was a very I, worthy film. It was a very worthy sure. film. Well, it's, I think it got one Oscar nomination for acting. And, yeah, just the, the crushing worthiness of it. And it's pretty much forgotten now. I think that's yeah. the main testament that to its kind of mediocrity. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, from, from there, Story of Us in 99, Alex and Emma in 2003, Rumour Has It in 2005, The Bucket List in 2007, Flipped in 2010, and The Magic of Belle Isle in 2012. That brings us up to date. Now, the mirror thing <laughs> I want to focus on, because uh, the story of us could have been the sequel to When Harry Met Sally. It's It features a lot of quote-unquote tr- truths about relationships, mm-hmm. uh, people talking to camera in a documentary style. It's, it's When Harry Met Sally, but without everything that worked about it. There's no profundity in there. It's just this shallow version of it. And when he did... Okay, so I, I want to I float a theory to you, and I know you haven't seen, Chris, uh, The Magic of Belle Isle. <laughs> Not yet, no. no. I'm, I'm going to pitch you? you a story, and it's about uh, a writer. He goes somewhere remote, away from the, the, the bustle he's used to in his everyday life. He is given a typewriter at the beginning. He has an awkward dinner with a fan of his books, and he can't move his legs. He even has a scene with an agent who's been trying to track him down in vain. This is the magic of Belle Isle is misery as made by the modern day Rob Ryan. (laughs) And a girl that yells at him for not writing the story she wanted him to write. Exactly, yes. It just keeps... It's it's misery. It's a remake of misery, but without a plot. (laughs) This film just bumbles along. Like, it has no story, no inciting incident. Things just happen in the plot because someone looked at the screenplay page number and went, okay, isn't... My screenwriting manual says they need to start falling in love by page 30, so we should really... Let's get on that. It's astonishingly bad. Just when, when you read out that list, the, the, the Blue Period list there, Lee, I mean, they don't even ring bells. I mean, did, did they get releases in Australia, half of those films? Well, yeah, no, they did. I mean, they, um, they, they reek of straight to video, if you know what I mean. Like, they abs- and they should have been. I think uh, these uh, days, well, The Magic of Belle Isle was straight to video here, I think. And uh, so I think was Flipped. Flipped was. Yeah, Flipped must have been. I'd remember a film called Flipped if that was playing. <laughs> like, but but um, Alex and Emma is... Oh, um, God. I, I, you can actually figure out uh, when it was released because the phrase starring Luke Wilson and Kate Hudson uh, only made sense in a six-month period in 2003. <laughs> you know? It, but, but he starts doing something here where, you know, you look at the accessibility of his early work where you've got The Princess Bride is about readers, people who like to read stories, and his later work starts to become about writers. So back to back you've got The Story of Us and Alex and Emma about writers. Uh, And and in these films, writers are depicted as people like Bruce Willis and Luke Wilson who sit around with stubble in the middle of a large room deleting their opening sentence over and over again. I mean, Alex and Emma in particular feels like, you know how writers in comedy rooms pitch the bad version of a joke? It's a very US thing. Alex and Emma is like someone pitched the bad version of Midnight in Paris. It's it's this, you know, weird fantasy of what writers do, but without any semblance of reality. And it feels like, 
he is removed from reality. And I think a lot of that might be, he, he's actually been quoted saying that in the 1990s, he realised he couldn't concentrate on both politics and filmmaking because he, he got a big interest in politics in the 90s. And he said his filmmaking began to suffer as a result. And so he recognises that there was a decline right. in the 90s. <laughs> really? uh, but he actually has he, a reason. How did he spot that? Was it that? <laughs> <laughs> but he keeps making films. That's the thing. Just, I mean, uh, like, he actually ran a, a, commit, a subcommittee uh, for the Californian um, Congress Mm. during the late 90s and early 2000s, until Schwarzenegger got in, that was all about, you know, early early child development and, you know, and, and schooling and preschools and all this sort of stuff. And then, you know, he, he was spearheaded the campaign to over, overturn Proposition 8. He was actually mentioned at one point as a possible Democratic candidate to go up against Schwarzenegger. That's right, uh, yeah. During that election. And I wish he had. I wish he kind of had quit filmmaking and turned to politics because this is the crap we're going to get. Um, His heart's not in it that is the answer. He was also... I know he's very famously a a big um, anti-smoking campaigner, which was... uh satirised very amusingly in a, in, a, in, a, in a South Park episode. And that is interesting. I think he is actually quite a credible political voice in, in Hollywood, mm. which I think is I think they all are these days, aren't they? It's compulsory. <laughs> if, if you want to get your film up, you've also got to give money to the Democrats or something. But maybe that's an explanation. I don't know. It's also I, like sometimes, I mean, maybe we should cut the guy some slack. I mean... Most people aren't brilliant forever. Uh, you know, he's, he's getting on in years. But look at the amount of just bands. I mean, you know, they put three or four good albums out, but then they all start churning out shifts. So maybe <laughs> sure. he, he just reached his quota of brilliance and, and he just... Maybe it's the the system's fault for giving him all these scripts to direct. I mean, they go. You can see how it would happen because all these scripts come in about writers and go. Oh, get the guy to do the Princess Bride. That was about writing. He'll he'll do a top job. I mean, because cause you can't argue with his CV when you look at it. It's still no. hot. Like even though it's got this in- embarrassing. I think we can call it a black period now, not a blue period. <laughs> even though it's got yeah. like, it, there's still there's still so much gold up top. I mean, you forgive him anything. If you if you make this a Spinal Tap, I don't care. You can put out. Fucking jiggly, and I don't care. <laughs> it's so bizarre, but that, but you will always remember him for that early stuff, which is so as as we've been discussing has had such an impact on yeah. our lives and others. Like the Princess Bride is so joyous. The uh, mm. when Harry met Sally is so dead on about about relationships and looking at relationships and what they mean to you at different points in your life. A Few Good Men is, you know, probably still the best courtroom drama of the last 30 years. The American president basically gave birth to the West Wing. And in fact, Sorkin generously credits Rob Reiner with inventing the famous Sorkin walk and talk, which which first emerged in A Few Good Men. Uh, He had a scene with the Tom Cruise and Demi Moore character, originally just them standing in a room, Reiner thought it, it wasn't busy enough and that it was a bit static, so suggested they do it as a walk and talk. And Sorkin loved it so much that he wrote it in to all subsequent, well, everything he wrote since. <laughs> so I think Thomas Schlamy, who was the director of The West Wing, often gets credited with inventing that style, but um, you can chalk that one up to Rob Reiner. Wow. Um, right. Yeah. The scary thing is that once the black period began, one by one, and you can see with the films, there's like a precipitous drop-off with each one, that all his gifts start fading. It's like somebody's force-feeding him kryptonite. Even, even his worst films have 
you know, something to offer. Um, <laughs> I, I, was, I would suggest that North in 94... Um, look, I don't like talking about celebrity gossip, but he did make a film about a kid called North who has narcissistic, self-absorbed parents. <laughs> it's, it could be the most prescient of all of his films. <laughs> <laughs> I not, did not, not think of that. <laughs> no, North spawned a famous... Ebert review, you know, from the Siskel and Ebert. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it, it's one. It's sort of often quoted as one of the the great takedowns of all time. And uh, the the final line of which, and I'm 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 paraphrasing here, but I, I, you, I I'm fairly in the in the in the ballpark. It's just I hated, 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 hated this film. I really hated it. <laughs> and, and, and which, which which then lends itself to a title of one of Roger Ebert's books, where it's just yeah, called yeah. I hated this film. That's where that comes from. So, so right, he right. he wow. really hated it, and then and then he he wrote Ryan a something of an, an apology, or at least a, and I forgive you after the American President was released, which came after North, saying, "Okay, okay, he's he's obviously found his mojo again." But no, I don't know what <laughs> what even made of the Black Period. I wonder if there's been any correspondence since. <laughs> it's funny you pick. Uh, we're talking about these two directors in this podcast because Spinal Tap is another of my five or six greatest comedies ever made. We've yeah, talked totally. about three of them today. Yeah. I think it is that combination of, as the films didn't begin to do as well, they started handing him scripts from the lower rungs of, of the shelf, and and then with this bifurcated focus on politics. And and also, too, he, I think what was very curious is he's, he became part of a panel that started looking at the portrayal of things like violence and smoking and sort of amoral behaviour in films. Mm. And I don't think it's a coincidence that these films have become so much more sentimental and mawkish since that evolution. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's taken the sting out of his approach, but it's also possibly thrown him off his creative axis. And that, that sort of that, that, that snap and that wanting to get at the truth, no matter how dirty it is, is kind of a little bit yeah. gone now. Do you, think it, do you think it's fair to say that none of his films are really director's films? I mean, the famous one, This is Spinal Tap, is more often than not called a Christopher Guest movie than a Rob yeah. Reiner yeah. film. And, I mean, there's four writers credited. Uh, it's the three main guys in the cast plus Reiner. But the film is largely um, entirely improvised, they've all, they've all said, and they always felt a bit embarrassed about their writing credit, given that everyone was improvising. Even something like A Few Good Men, which is his biggest hit ever, is known for its acting. Like, it's the Nicholson and Cruz sort of sh- shouting match in the courtroom. Mm. It's No one ever talks about the cinematography or the camera angles or anything like that. It's, it's seen as a great courtroom drama with great acting. Similarly, I think something like Stand By Me and When Harry Met Sally are very much seen as writer's films, like just lovely stories. In one sense, yeah, he's not a director's director, but in another sense, you've still got to helm these things and not fuck them up, if you know what yeah. I mean. Which, yeah. which, is a, which is a talent in itself. I mean, in other hands, like imagine Rodriguez making this a spinal tap, it'd be And the thing is, like, he could make... He could turn Magic of Belle Isle into a franchise and make 12 more, and nothing will take away the fact that he had that string of films so early in his career and just, and that any director would be envious of. Yeah. You know Um, what I just realised? He's gone from a writer's director to a director who can't make films about writers. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Right. That's a good point. 
<laughs> well, on that note, Chris, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. And I'd love to come back sometime and talk about the films of Rob Schneider. Um, oh, God. These, these are the great American comedian auteurs. Haven't you put us through enough pain? <laughs> uh, but no, thanks so much for having me. It's been a hoot and uh, it's a great indulgence to kick back and talk film for an hour. So thanks for inviting me. Thank you, Our sir. pleasure. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Don't make me angry. You won't like me when I'm angry.